take your Bibles and find your way to Luke chapter 22, the passage that was just read. We'll get to that passage eventually this morning. This morning we are concluding our series entitled, Who We Are. In this sermon series has been a review and a refreshment of the rich doctrines and Bible truths that are found in our mission statement as a church and the accompanying core values that go with it. Uh, So far, we have looked at the core values of Scripture, worship, community, and missions, and uh, you can find the defining statements for each of those core values on our website under the Our Purpose uh, page. And if you have missed any of the sermons in this, you know, Who We Are series, I'd like to encourage you to find them online and listen to them. It's not because I think there are the best sermons we've ever preached here, uh, but I think it's important for us to have a shared understanding of what these core values are so we can be thinking the same thing and be pursuing them together in the same way as a church family. So in other words, I'm asking, please don't assume that you understand what worship, scripture, community, and missions means. Um, if you've missed that, it would be helpful for you to uh, give time for that. I hear there's a holiday tomorrow. you got all sorts of time to listen to sermons, right? Today we're going to explore the core value of ministry. Ministry. Here at Highlands, we define ministry like this. You can find the statement uh, in the worship guide in the bulletin there in the, in the bottom left corner. We define ministry this, <coughs> excuse me, this way, serving Jesus by equipping every member to love God, love others, and make disciples. And so what I hope to do with this sermon this morning is to help us have a shared understanding of what ministry is so we can pursue it together and so we can encourage each other and in in healthy ways hold each other accountable uh, in pursuing this core value. So the first part of the sermon, I'm going to try to define what ministry is. And then I'm going to just unpack a couple of statements in our definition, namely the love God and love others portion. And then I'm going to try to wrap it all up together um, at the end to see uh, what it might look like here at Highland. So, number one, what is ministry? Ministry is service. Ministry is service. I wonder what comes to mind when you hear the word ministry. It's likely that there's a diversity of meaning. I'd, I'd like to think that we have a lot of common understanding of that word, but there's probably a lot of diversity in that word as well. The New Oxford American Dictionary defines ministry like this the work or vocation of a minister of religion. So, for instance, we might say something like uh, somebody is training for the ministry and we all go like, oh, okay, they want to be a pastor or some person involved in, in church, official church work like that. Uh, sometimes it's describing a, the Oxford American Dictionary says the period of tenure of a minister of religion. So, for instance, we might say someone has served for, uh, in ministry for 10 years and we understand typically what that means. But the third definition in the dictionary says this, the spiritual work or service of any Christian or a group of Christians. And I I like these definitions aren't surprising because it focuses in on the spiritual aspect of ministry that I think comes to our minds when we hear that word. But I want to make sure that we understand that we don't artificially categorize ministry as something that only happens on Sunday by pastors. If that's your idea of ministry, that's not the definition that we would understand ministry to be or the New Testament would understand the word ministry to be. So many spheres of life can be ministry. Marriage can be ministry. Professional career can be ministry. Packing lunches for kids before they go to school can be ministry. And all the people that have done that all school year long are thankful school is over. You don't have to do that anymore. All sorts of spheres of life can be ministry. How do we know that? We know that because of the way the New Testament uses the term. 
The Greek term that stands behind the English word ministry in our, in our scriptures is the Greek term diakonia. And that is the Greek term that stands behind the word deacon. And it's used all sorts of ways, not all sorts of ways, it's used frequently in the New Testament. And its most basic meaning, it, it's used to describe waiting tables. It's used to describe giving care to other people. And so in a comprehensive kind of a general way, it just means to serve. So then, for our understanding this morning, when we hear the word ministry, we should also be then thinking, oh, we're talking about serving, to serve. The term ministry in the scriptures describes acts of service. For instance, it's used in Matthew chapter 4 to describe what the angels did after Christ was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. It says that the angels came and were ministering to him. That word minister there is they were serving him. They They were caring for him. If you look in, uh, let's see here, Luke chapter 8, it's used to describe the financial support that some were giving Jesus and his disciples. It says that uh, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. The word provided for is actually the Greek term that stands behind our word ministry. It's used to describe what Martha was so busy doing and why she was upset at her sister for not helping her do more, Right? When she complains to Jesus, come on, Martha was distracted with much serving, Luke chapter 10, and she goes to Jesus and says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? The word serve there is the word ministry. Luke 17, John chapter 12 is describing the general acts of waiting tables, of serving tables uh, for people who are eating. So all sorts of different uses of the same word when we hear the word ministry. But I hope that simple explanation or the simple list of New Testament uses of the word help us understand that at its most basic meaning, the word ministry means serving, service. So, if given a choice, what would you choose, to serve or be served? (laughs) Right? I mean, we can kind of all feel a little guilty. You know, we'll put on our spiritual hats and, you know, look, you know, really spiritually attuned. What does Jesus say about service? In fact, what Jesus says about serving really turns the cultural norms of his day upside down, and it really does the same for us. Uh, we'll pay top dollar to go to a resort or go on a cruise to be served. They don't have cruises where you pay so you can change bed sheets and wait tables and you know, do dishes and all that. You're like, well, that's strange. No way. We, we pay money to avoid serving so that others we can have the benefit. And again, I'm not wanting any of you to feel guilty about a vacation you have planned in a month or something because, oh man, here I'm not serving. No, please don't, don't, don't think that. It just highlights the idea that our notion of serving is often something that we can look down upon. But Jesus had the exact opposite look at that. When Jesus talks about serving, we learn that not only is, is ministry service, but number two, ministry is part of greatness. And we're okay with Jesus saying this to, to you know, theoretical people out there, but then we have a really hard time accepting this when he's saying this to us. But the passage that was read in Luke chapter 22 with the dispute, they're arguing about who is going to be the greatest. And Jesus then says, hey, here's how it's happening in your culture where, where the lords are kind of ruling over and there's benefactors, these financial donors that are giving money. They, they accrue power and influence because of their financial gifts. And they kind of lord it over people as well so that people are serving them. And Jesus says, no, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And we lose the, the, the pull of this because of our Western society that has largely elevated youth and diminished um, age. 
But in this culture, it would have been the exact opposite. Um, in our culture, we're kind of putting, putting age kind of on the shelf and kind of look down on it. But in this culture where Jesus was, was speaking to, age was what brought honor and respect and dignity. And the youth would, would find it honorable to serve those that had elderly, those that, who were elderly that had age and experience and wisdom. And Jesus is telling them, listen, you've got it all wrong. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? And all of them are thinking, well, clearly the one who is greater is the one who is reclining at the table being served. That's what they understood. And then Jesus turns the analogy when he says this, is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? In Mark chapter 10, there's a parallel passage to what we read in Luke 22. He says, But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And here's the proof for what he says is true, even though culture disagrees with it. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's astonishing here is not just that he turns things upside down, but Jesus doesn't teach about ministry and service as a, in a theoretical way. What I mean by that is what Jesus was teaching in those passages. Jesus lived. Jesus wasn't giving a speech about a theoretical ideal about serving and greatness. He embodied that ideal in his life. And according to Jesus, there is a greatness in life to be experienced only if we engage in ministry in serving others. He uses himself as the definitive proof that a life given to service is a great life. And Jesus is that individual where no matter what he would be doing, because of who he is, what he's doing, there's a greatness in there, the king of kings. So even if he was washing feet, right, he's demonstrating there's a greatness in what he's doing in service. And by the way, when Jesus washed feet, the passage that, that was read for us this morning, Jesus didn't just wash the feet of the people he liked. He washed the feet of the one who would betray him. And I think that also there's a whole, right, there's a whole sermon series there about unpacking the depth of what service is in ministry as Jesus understood it. So it might sound, right, doubtful to our modern ears and sensibilities that there's greatness somehow to be found in serving, but Jesus believed it, he lived it, he demonstrated it, and he calls us into it as well. So really at Highlands then our prayer should be that God would be pleased to fill this church with members who believe and live in accord with what Jesus thought about serving. We forget this regularly, which is why we're in this together. We help each other. We remind each other of this. We keep encouraging each other. And there's times, I'm not, well, we'll get to that in just a minute here, okay? But serving Jesus, okay? Ministry is service, and it's a part of greatness. Our definition of ministry says this, serving Jesus by equipping every member to love God, love others, and make disciples. I'm not going to be able to spend time on the equipping every member part. Uh, we've talked about that some in other, ser other sermons, but I would just encourage you to read Ephesians 4. And equipping is happening here at Highlands in all sorts of different ways. Uh, through the Sunday morning, the faithful preaching of God's word Sunday morning, um, through the equipping electives that are offered, through home groups that are offered, and through our encouragement of being people of the word as we, as we try to focus in on this. Um, but I'd like for us then to understand how do we serve Jesus? Our definition says that ministry is serving Jesus. You say, okay, well, you've been talking about serving others. How are we supposed to be serving Jesus? If Jesus is king of kings, 
And if he created everything, right, then how is it possible that he could be in need of us serving him? Well, number three, Christian ministry ultimately serves Jesus. Ministry is service. Ministry is the path of greatness. And number three, Christian ministry ultimately serves Jesus. If you are able to find your way over to Matthew 25, go ahead and and turn over there. I'll have this passage on screen as well. So if a Bible is unfamiliar to you or you're not able to find your way there, there's a Bible in the seat back pocket in front of you. We'd be happy for you to take a copy with you, but we'll also have it here on screen so we can stay together. In this section of Matthew 25, Jesus is teaching about the final day of judgment. He teaches about a day when he's going to separate between those who treasure him as Savior and those who do not. And he uses the analogy of sheep and goats being separated in a flock. Those who treasure Jesus, those who know him, who call on him for salvation, Jesus calls his sheep, part of his flock, his people. And those who do not embrace him are called goats. The sheep are his people who inherit eternal life. The goats are those who do not. Okay? Jesus says in this day of judgment, he's going to call his people to him, And his sheep, he's going to put on the right side. This is your right, correct, right? On the right side. And he's going to separate the goats onto the left side. Beginning in verse 34 of Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Now listen to Jesus' answer in verse 40. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now, for context, okay, that that verse 40 is is spun out of context often to mean any acts of service to anybody, anywhere, at any time. But verse 40, for the context, is Jesus qualifies who the service is done to. And I just want us to understand this for our sake today, talking to Highlands Baptist Church in regard to our core value of ministry, serving Jesus by, um, through, through equipping each other to love God and love others. Our context, he says, you're serving who? The least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So he is speaking about Christians serving other Christians. And he's talking about not just people serving popular, special, important, so-called, right, celebrity Christians, but Jesus is saying, no, this is the unknown, quiet acts of service, the simple, ordinary acts of service done to one another, the least of these, my brothers. In other words, Christians helping others, seemingly insignificant Christians, which, by the way, look around, that's who we are, right? We're just ordinary people. We're ordinary people. We're just trying to live life and and get through life and raise our families and and contribute to society in meaningful ways and display God's glory and tell others about Jesus so they can share in that. We're just, we, we are the least of these, my brothers, in that way. When we do this, when we serve one another in these simple, seemingly mundane ways, Jesus receives those actions as being done to him. These are not my words. These are Jesus' words. When he says that this is what it's like. We lose sight of this. We lose sight of this. 
when we lose sight of this, our hearts become drained of strength and commitment to serve one another. And the result then is that we are missing out on a breathtaking wonder of serving Jesus. For instance, what if we knew Jesus would be with us next Sunday at 10 a.m. for our service? Right? Some of you are like, oh, I'm not showing up. <laughs> okay, I don't know where you're, where you're going that, right? Just imagine he was. If we sent out an email, now you're going to be checking your emails, right? We sent out an email with a sign-up that says, we need help. Somebody to greet Jesus at the door. Somebody to bring Jesus a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. I don't know what you prefer. Somebody to introduce him to different people in the church so they can begin new friendships. Who would like to sign up to do that? How, I wonder how quickly that sign-up would fill up. Friends, Jesus is saying, well, this is wonderful news, because this means that children's ministry workers and nursery workers take heart. Greeters and hospitality teams take heart. Music team take heart. And garbage bag emptiers, light turner offers, chair straighteners, door openers, door closers, you fill in the blank of all the simple mundane things that happen for us even just to gather on a Sunday morning to give worship, to unite in worship to God, take heart. Because as you do this, be mindful of what Jesus taught. When you do it, to the least of these, he receives it as acts of service to himself. What greater audience could you want? What greater way to fill the simple mundane activities we might do towards one another with God-centered, glorious purposes? This close connection between Christ and the church is sometimes overlooked. We miss it, right? Someone might say, well, I'm interested in serving Jesus. Yeah, I'll sign up for that, but I'm not interested in serving the church. It's hurt me, it's betrayed me, it's frustrated me, and we can go on. It is, it is a sad reality that the Christian church has caused pain and betrayal and frustration in people's lives. Some of you have felt that firsthand. Yet we cannot separate Jesus from his church, nor can we separate our service to Christ from our actions of ministry to his body, the church. In fact, every single relationship that God calls you into is going to be touched by the pain and frustration of sin because we are sinners. That's, that's the world we live in. But God has given us something breathtaking by giving us the, the glory and the hope of even the simplest mundane acts of service to one another are full of God-centered, glorious purposes because God receives it, Jesus receives those actions as service to himself. So one of the takeaways for us in regards to this core value then is our feelings about service in the church are not of primary importance. They're not. What is of primary importance are the actions of service we do toward one another as part of our service to Christ. Now, I'm, I'm saying this because I, I have, I'm preaching to this audience in this context, in this culture. And, and we've got a lot of cultural influences pushing on us in our understanding of ministry and actions of service to one another. We must keep a conscious awareness that Christ is ultimately who we serve as we engage in ministry toward one another. So we're going to forget this often, so we need to help each other remember this. When we keep this in mind, our hearts can sing. When we're doing the, the most inglorious thing, like changing a diaper of an infant in the nursery, nobody really says, I feel called to diaper cleaning. But there are, really, honestly, as we do these actions of service to one another, understanding that Jesus is pleased and he receives this as service done to him. I'm not suggesting, by the way, 
that scriptures encourage or condone heartless service? Or is it heartless service as our goal or aim, right? It doesn't matter what we feel we're just going to serve because this is ultimately serving Jesus. We're just going to muscle on, soldier. No. And this leads us to the final point of the sermon this morning. Christian ministry is love. It's love. So I want you to take notice of two parts of our definition of ministry there. You can see it in the bulletin. We're, we're equipping members to what? To love God and love others. So I'm going to focus on those love God and love others. The make disciples, I'm not, I'm not abandoning that. It's just that particular part I think was touched in last week's sermon on the missions, what making disciples and how that fits into our mission. And again, one of the ways we show our love to others is by telling them about Jesus so they can share in his love, okay? But within Highlands Baptist Church, ministry is a matter of love. The word love, okay? Now I need to say a few things about love. Um, and it seems like pastors in this age, just uh, we, we, we can't escape this. We have to do this. And we're going to keep doing this because the culture keeps pressing different ideas of love upon us. And we might um, object to those ideas verbally, but what can happen is those forces are strong and it starts to press in on our consciences in the ways that we begin to function with a, with a modern view of love, even though our mouths might confess a different view of love. The word love in our modern Western ears means many things, and many of those things the scriptures do not agree with. God is the one who gets to define love. After all, we are told in 1 John 4, 8, he says, it says God is love. So whatever notion you might have of love, we need, to, we need to make sure that we let God be the one that determines our definition. How does God define love? Well, there's lots of passages we could go to, but here's just two. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and now he's going to define how, what that love looks like, and sent his son to be the, and here's a big theological word, propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means this, the satisfaction of God's wrath. So it means, it, let's say you were doing 80 in a 20-mile-an-hour lane or road. I don't think you have 20-mile-an-hour lane, sorry. And you had a, I would assume that's a pretty big deal, pretty, pretty big ticket. And somebody says, I will take that wrath for you. Jesus did that, but it was much bigger than a speeding ticket. And that's the definition of God's love, of love. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us. What does that love look like? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John three sixteen. Probably, even if you're not a Christian, you probably have heard that verse before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And here's just a question for our modern Western American ears. Where is the being swept off your feet, the romance, the heart thundering, where are those words in those verses? I know I'm probably being a little unfair there. But often when we hear the word love, we have this kind of swooning, romantic type of definition in our minds. But God defines love in starkly different terms than our culture does. Now again, I'm not saying that God's heart towards his people is cold or disaffectionate, and that is not the case at all. But I'm just trying to highlight what, is this, what do the scriptures emphasize when it talks about God's love. In other words, love is the great saving acts of God accomplished for us by Jesus. The gospel, 
Really, what we're talking about here now is the gospel, the, the central message of what it means to be a Christian. The good news of Jesus taking the punishment sinners deserve, that's you and me, so that all who would turn from their love affair with sin and embrace Jesus by faith, and that, those words simply mean you, you're going to believe who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And if that is true, then you will be forgiven your sins, the guilt and shame of your sins removed, and you will be brought into right relationship with God so that you can enjoy him forever. That's the gospel message. That is the good news. That is love. That is Jesus' ministry to you. Love is not primarily a sentiment. Love is not primarily a feeling. I don't think Jesus felt warm affection when he prayed in agony to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was awaiting his betrayal and arrest. Nor do I think Jesus felt swept off his feet in romantic love while he was dying on the cross. And I am being dramatic here for effect. I am. But I'm just trying to help our modern ears push back on the sentimental definitions of love that we often jump to. Love is often, in our modern age, how someone makes us feel. Love, though, in the Scriptures... And praise God for this. It is an action based on a promise. Love is the action of covenant commitment. So to illustrate this, think about Christian marriage, right? Marriage is all about love, right? When you've got people confessing love to each other in this beautiful ceremony, but at its core, marriage is a covenant commitment. At its core, marriage is not really a feeling. It includes feelings, right? And hopefully we're saying warm, affectionate feelings, yes. But, for instance, marriage is much more than feelings. It's been said like this. Your dog might have strong feelings for you, but you're not married to your dog. You know that there's something more that has to be there. We understand this, right? And I know we live in a world where that they may be coming, right? But marriage is a covenant commitment of love. That is why the bride and groom make wedding vows, right? To have and to hold in sickness and in health, for rich or for poor. The power of marriage vows is not saying, I love the way you make me feel. The power of marriage vows is, Promising what you will do when you don't feel that way. Promising, really, the wedding vows are functioning most in the marriage when you don't feel like honoring them. But you are what? You are a person who is covenanted in love. And all through the scriptures, really, that would be a whole other sermon series of seeing God's love demonstrated to his people through him keeping his covenant with them. God was not just swept off his feet for Israel or for us. So then, being part of a church family is in a way like being married to a church family. And if you're one of those new member candidates, now you're getting all worried and concerned. But think of this. Being a church member is a relationship of loving commitment. The members of this church family covenant together in what we call a member covenant. It's described like this in section 304 of our bylaws. And I know, if you've never heard a sermon where you got the pastor quoting from the bylaws. I know we're weird like that, right? But I'm just trying to understand... Ministry is anchored in this, in these ways, in the DNA of who we are as a church family. It says this, the church covenant is equal parts promise, summary of expectations, ethical statement, and biblical standard. We summarize how we promise to live together in the covenant. It forms the ethics or the moral principles of our worldview and holds out a biblical standard by which we live. Friends, and then there's a whole list of the promises that we make to one another, which are actually expressions of love of how we're going to serve each other. What is that word? How we're going to minister to one another. That is the ministry that we share with one another as church members. 
How does any of this then relate to the core value of our ministry? It matters in this way. Ministry is service, and service is love in action. Service is love in action. Ministry is love in action. How do we love God? Well, Jesus said it like this in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will feel ooey-gooey for me. Well, I hope you do have a heart of affection for God. Yes. Okay, please hear. We, we like to be all-or-nothing kind of people, right? Either or. And, and God is calling us to this razor edge of walking, what? In obedience to him as the de- demonstration of our love for him, all the while, yes, having hearts warmed for him through the gospel. Again, I'm not diminishing the importance of emotions or affections in a relationship. God made emotions. He made affections. They're wonderful, they're powerful, and they can be used for glorious purposes. But we live in a world where feelings are all that seem to matter. And we live in a world, at least where it seems, that feelings matter most. Where we relate to one another, and well, I just feel, and we talk about how we're thinking. That's not how you're feeling, that's how you're... We, we kind of have those things blended so much so that we can't understand ourselves apart from our feelings. And we're very complicated creatures. Have you ever been happy, sad, excited, scared, and, 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 and full of anticipation all at the same time? Right. Yeah. You could be driving down the road fast because your wife is going to be giving birth to a baby and you're excited and scared, right? I mean, that's just one illustration. So we can't just be our feelings and we can't operate from that alone. What I'm trying to call us to is in a modern age where everything is based on feelings and all the movies and the stories that seem to be popular are just feelings-driven, Christ's church is going to be unique in living out a gospel-centered virtue of ministry, which is what? Love in action. So then, we must relate to each other primarily not out of so-called feelings. By the way, this is good news. As we look around, you don't have to feel ooey-gooey for, the church, for all the church members in this, in this place. You don't. Doesn't that relieve you from that burden? That's a good thing. You don't have to conjure up, manufacture false feelings. Say, well, I can just like tell them I don't like you, and but we're members, so I guess we're just going to have to get along. No, there's better ways forward than that. Hang in there, okay? How about this? If, if ministry is love in action, let's focus in on that and trust God for the feelings to follow. For instance, over time, I believe, over time, as we serve each other, we will discover feelings of love often follow actions of love. And I think I've used this illustration before. I've heard parents, this is what happens to parents. You serve and serve and serve this little person that just takes and takes and takes. But over the period of time, after a decade or two or whatever, suddenly your hearts are so wound up in this little person that you cannot, what? Even if they were to betray you or turn their backs on you, you are going to charge forward in love. This is true in marriage and parenting, and it's also true in the church. When we repeatedly choose to act in loving commitment toward each other, over time, I believe, we will find our hearts woven in and around each other more and more and discover affection for one another in healthy ways. We might even discover that some people we may not have liked very much to begin with, we have somehow somehow become very dear to our hearts in ways we couldn't have possibly imagined when we started on this journey. When that happens... Here's what happens. God's glory is displayed. God's glory is displayed in a people like that. So ask yourself, what actions of loving service are you engaged in toward this church family? Well, maybe this is the better question. What excuses have you been using to avoid ministry? What excuses might Jesus have used? Again, I'm not trying to 
give artificial guilt. I'm not, there, there are probably some that would hear a sermon about ministry and service and action and you're thinking, I just need to do more and more and more. And if that is you, please, that is not what was being preached. That's a different issue beyond what we can look at today. What I'm trying to zero in on is what seems, that, what, what seems to be the greatest threat to ministry, not just in a church, but in any relationship, marriage and on and on it goes, is selfishness. We are, by nature, self-absorbed people. And if you don't think you are, that's an evidence of being self-absorbed. We are all, by nature, self-absorbed, but Jesus came to save us from that. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says this, He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Jesus has rescued us from the American dream. He has. And He's offering us this rich life of what? Spending our lives in service for others. And he receives that as service to himself. Now, it's likely that all of us carry some baggage or have some scars that make serving in Christ's church difficult. And I realize I'm oversimplifying this, being reductionistic in, my, in this. So really, please don't take this too far. But the issues in our life probably aren't the baggage or scars we carry, but how those scars and baggage that we carry aggravate a selfishness that already resides deep within us. Again, I'm not asking us to be recklessly dangerous with personal issues and baggage and and wounds, and I'm not saying you shouldn't seek help and find scriptural counseling to encourage and build healthy patterns of thinking and action moving forward. Please, that is true. What I am asking us, though, is to be gospel honest with ourselves about reasons that we say no to genuine ministry needs of love in action. For instance, I'll close with this. If anyone in the scriptures could have used the I've got scars from serving Christ's church, I know it could have been Jesus, but that's not fair, right? Because Jesus is Jesus. So let's take someone else. It would be the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if, if anybody could have used the I've been scarred by Christ's church card, it could have been Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 28, he says, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. Okay? He's, he's, he's admitting. He's, being, he's talking like a fool. He's embarrassed to even talk this way because it sounds like he's, you know, he's blown his own, own trumpet. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. By the way, I'm not saying that God calls us all to be Paul like this. Okay? So please don't take this to its extreme. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And you're like, well, thanks for making us feel like great Christians. You had to read that, right? Here's what happened, though. That's what happened outside of Paul in his life. And you say, well, well, then how did Paul find the courage and strength to carry on? Because I get... You know, my, my world comes crashing down with, I guess, the slightest little thing. Well, in chapter 12, he goes on and says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had received from God, not just were these external forces at work against him of great cost, he says this, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, 
to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he, the Lord, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. These are words we all are fine to listen to, but we are reluctant to apply them to ourselves. And I'm right there alongside of you. Therefore, here's Paul's conclusion. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, see his focus there? For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Christians, the, the, the motivation for, for ministry, love and action here at Highlands Ephesus Church is not to have a perfect life We're not serving out of the excesses of time and energy. We're not serving out of the excesses of convenience. We are all serving out of weakness, out of insufficiency. Uh, We all share in the sense of there's, there's more to be done in the ministry that God has called us to than we could possibly fulfill. What we need to repent of is not that we didn't do it all, but that we tried or that we have abandoned our efforts in that because we just, well, I just, I'm, I'm spread too thin. And again, there may be ways where, we, where you are. This isn't a workaholic sermon. But this is asking for us to really be honest with ourselves and assessing ourselves through a biblical lens, not a modern American lens, about our approach to how we engage in loving action towards others. God is pleased with our weak, feeble acts of service to his church. We might read about the Apostle Paul and think, Man, what a giant of Christianity, of strength, of resourcefulness, of ingenuity and creativity. He was like a Christian entrepreneur par excellence. That's not what he said here. Paul's experience was one of just hardship and, and weariness, of brokenness, of personal struggles in his own body as he charged forward in acts of love and ministry for Christ's church. Remember Jesus' words. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I'll ask the music team to come up. I'm going to close with this final illustration. Our five core values, right? Our mission statement, why we exist for, to display God's glory, and then how are we going to do it by focusing on these core values. Think of it this way. Our five core values of scripture, and worship, community, missions, and ministry, they all work together. Think of it like oil in an engine. You, without oil, the engine's not going to function properly. You, you're going to try to use that engine and it's going to damage itself and the same is true for us as a church family. We need to have these core values. We believe they're core. We believe they're, they're indis- because they're indispens- indispensable. They're essential for our life together as a church. And if we remove any of these core values, we're going to be like an engine not firing on all cylinders. We're going to be an engine lacking oil. It's going to be struggling and difficult. We're going to wind up damaging ourselves. So I say that here's the good news though. We have Jesus. Jesus lived these values perfectly. And he calls us into a life of his righteousness. And we might say, well, we're weak and we're broken and we're scarred and we got baggage and we're worn out and we're tired and we're disillusioned. Yes, all that is true, but you also have Jesus. Friends, if we can keep our focus there, when we look at one another, when we empty garbage cans, when we open doors, when we turn on lights, when we, whatever, whatever it is, when you serve in children's, on and on it goes. When you fill coffee, when you get treats ready, when you 
whatever the meaning, mundane types of activities you might be involved in or have been asked to be involved in, remember this, we have Jesus. And he sees this and receives it as actions done to him. And friends, there's no greater audience than that. Let's pray.